as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Davis. False sense of security, which I think I have, and I've been warned against it, at least a newspaper article. Dr. Ivan Melendez is the medical authority for Hidalgo County. We've been talking to him since coronavirus hit hit this place so uh tell tell us about the false sense of security and and dr melendez what do you base that on how are you seeing that well uh, thanks for having me and i think that what we need to look at is just as usual just pure math and so if we look at the uh, people in the hospital beds uh, approximately we have two thousand hospital beds in Hidalgo county about 1200 are available we have over 100 people in the hospital are testing out uh, positive for COVID. And so we're probably looking at at least about 10% of our population in the hospital have COVID positive uh, tests. That doesn't mean that all of them are there for COVID. Some are. They, we have over, you know, close to 10, pardon me, on ventilators. So COVID is still active in the community. Because we can't trace it, there's so many at-home tests. Uh, but all of us that are listening to us this moment know that during the last month, we know multiple people, if not ourselves, who have tested positive for COVID. So false security to me means that people believe that uh, this problem is gone, that the pandemic is over, and that uh, that we don't need to worry about it anymore. And I just want to remind people that nature is uh, nature will will always find a way. And so uh, as this virus has showed us, the mutations have become more and more tricky. Um, I don't believe that this problem is over. And so when I see the lowest rates of vaccination updates, the lowest uh, uh, rates of booster updates, uh, it concerns me. Uh, with school coming, with all the travel we did this summer, oh, yeah. holidays coming around the corner, I just don't think that this uh, this COVID-19 has been put to rest yet. That's my concern. Uh, I've, as I think we've said before, I've been vaccinated twice by Pfizer and twice boosted, and I'm ready for that third one whenever it comes around. I don't know about you. I know you had it and you had a rough time. I got it, but it wasn't bad. So I admit, I thought, well, you know, <clears throat> I don't have to worry anymore. And so I kind of quit taking my mask with me when I go places. Should I still be masking up? I used to do it just as a courtesy to people. What should I do? That's a good question because we get very sort of wearing the thing. Myself too. I walk around all day in hospitals where it's mandatory still, uh, hospitals and uh, correction facilities, and it gets old and it's difficult to breathe, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's discouraging when we see other people not wearing masks. Uh, I don't know. You know, Rick, you have you have ten percent of people in the hospital with COVID. Uh, we're in and out of rooms with people with COVID. For us, it's a pretty easy, pretty answer. And that is, uh, of course, everyone in the hospitals and around people with COVID should be wearing masks. For people out in the community, there's so many variants. What's your, 
What is your vaccination status? Uh, what are your risk factors? Yeah. Are you in ventilated areas? Are you outside? Do you know the status of people that are vaccinated? Do not. Are you on an airplane? So it's kind of a what is, what is. I, I believe that until we, until we have people dying every week, you know, in our valley, at least half a dozen are dying weekly of COVID as a result of COVID, that we need to be, we need to be on the lookout. So if you're at home, you know all the parameters. Certainly, you can be running around without a mask. If you're in places where it's not clear for you, that gummit, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to wear that mask a little bit longer until we get these numbers completely gone or almost gone. Do you still use just when you're out, not in the hospital? Do you still use uh, um, hand sanitizer? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many bottles of hand sanitizer I have. Um, yeah, I've always been a bad person to do sanitizer personally because I, I have psoriasis, and so it really it really uh, uh -huh. acts up my dermatitis with psoriasis. But uh, certainly, I've gotten uh, as lax as the next person about using sanitizer uh, when I'm out in public. In the hospital, of course, it's a different story. You have nurses that tell you, "Doctor, you need to use the hand sanitizer," or they well, there's worse. They have they're not they're nurses that are planted, <laughs> housekeeping that's planted, hospital personnel that's planted, that's in the hallways actually counting the people who are uh, using sanitizers in between each room because they're, they're placed at each room. And then we take a, a, a percentage of those people that are not, and that's reported. Uh-oh. Because they're actually being watched. There's actually spies everywhere watching you. <laughs> <laughs> That, I, the reason I say that I'll be very quick. There was a, an article years ago I read about some about the transmission of disease in hospitals. This one they had an excessive disease rate in the ICU, so their solution was they stripped the thing right and they desanitized it. I mean they boom and then they put a nurse in charge to tell the doctors if the doctors weren't washing their hands or whatever they had a big nurse was there to tell them to go do it and their infection rate went way down and i'm not trying to make a joke about doctors and nurses but i just thought it was interesting and they it it worked they cut their disease rate now speaking of diseases i remember polio kind of i remember getting the 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 polio vaccine and now it's back how can i thought we had defeated polio yeah, we did too. We thought that in the last major wild. Let's remember, there's two types of polio: wild polio, which is disease that's running around among in the community, as we see in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, the last two countries where it's endemic. And then there are those polios that we have now in the United States, who are imported from other areas. And you're right. Uh, around late 1950s is when polio peaked out with, you know, 58, 60,000 cases a year. You know, 3,000 people dying a year, parents. You know, I was born in 1960, but I remember just a, a, a big brother generation before. Some parents were even afraid to let their, their kids out. And polio is very tricky because uh, it can take up to 30 days before you start having vague symptoms. And about 10% of people get really, really sick. They can become paralyzed. And if, they're, uh, if their respiratory muscles become paralyzed, that equals death. And recently, last year, Israel... Uh, found, you know, pe most people don't know is that uh, stool samples, black water samples in all the communities around the country are being monitored by different health agencies for, for all sorts of viruses. COVID-19, polio is mm -hmm. one of them. So last year, Israel found some in their, uh, Jerusalem found some in their water supply. Yeah. Um, a couple of months ago, London found some. And as you know, I think last week, New York 
uh, found some viruses, uh, yeah. well, some polio viruses in their in their stools, and so that tells you that there are probably hundreds of people that are running around shedding viruses in, the, in their stools from polio. And in fact, there was a case of concurrent imported uh, uh, polio virus. So when you think that this uh, disease is over, it brings its head back. And the reason is because lack of vaccination. Before of COVID-19 yeah. across the board, 87% of people were vaccinated with their usual vaccines. Now it's down to 81%. And the resistance to the COVID vaccine said let other people have resistance for other vaccinations so most of us that are already drinking uh, have pretty good protection because it was mandatory and most of the kids right now in school it's mandatory age two months four months six months and then again at four to six uh, years of age if you're one of those people that are going to be in an area that's endemic or uh, uh, if you feel that you're a particularly high-risk group you can always get boosted and that's what a lot of people in New York are doing now, adults, that is. They're getting boosters since they haven't had it since childhood. So why is it coming back? It's coming back for two reasons. One, it's being imported from countries that it's endemic as we're a more global community. And number two, our lack of vaccination rates across the board are notably going down. Specifically in New York, where they're getting the first um, uh, reports, they have 70% of, of their kids that are vaccinated for polio versus 95% the rest of the country. Yeah. So lack of vaccination and imports is why it's coming back. Yeah. Friend, uh, friend texted me that the non-vaxxers are getting stronger. So where, uh, how do you know if you need to get a, a booster, a, a polio booster? Or is it one of those things that, you know, can't hurt. So let's go get it done. If you're going to be working in areas where there's a high incidence of polio, so if it does come back, if you're in these particular hospitals, or if you're traveling to areas that are endemic, not many of us are traveling to the rural countries in Pakistan. Certainly not many of us are traveling to Afghanistan. But most people that do travel to these areas, it would certainly be a, a great idea uh, to get boosted. Remember, you can get it from oral fecal route. It's somebody's stool, and then someone comes along and doesn't wash your hand appropriately, and you, you actually eat the virus. And once you get it, it takes about 30 days to uh, get uh, the weakness, lassitude, malaise, headaches, debility, numbness, paralysis, and even death. Yeah. So that's who should be vaccinated, like our booster, Jeez. that is. Um, can you tell us uh, if we have to worry about monkey, pa- monkey pox in 30 seconds? Because <laughs> we're out of time. Yeah, 11,890 cases as of today in our country. We start vaccinating tomorrow. Our health department does. We have enough for about almost 2,000 people. It's two doses. You get one. 28 days later, you get the second dose. Monkeypox, no one has died in the United States. Ten people in the world outside of Africa. It certainly numbers are exponentially growing. So by definition, it is an epidemic, almost surging pandemic. Remember last uh, last uh, week? We had around 22,000. Now we're above 30,000 cases in the world. And the United States had 6,000. And as I said, now we're over 10,000. So numbers are increasing in the valley to this point, zero. Uh, but it'll get here at some point. Yeah. Someone will test positive. So worry? No. I'll be on the lookout? Yes. Vaccination? If you're on the high-risk group? Absolutely. Dr. Ivan Melendez, thank you again for, for talking with us and filling us in and uh, always Uh, Always interesting, always fascinating. Thank you very much, Dr. Ivan Melendez, who is the medical director of uh, Hidalgo County. You're listening to the 956 Drive Home on 710 KURV. 
You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We have some visitors from the land down under. They're unwelcome visitors. <laughs> some crayfish that they found in Brownsville. From Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, aquatic biologist Dr. Archis Grubb joining us. Uh, first question right off the bat, can we cook and eat this thing? Oh, yeah, sure. These are good eating. Because <laughs> then I think I found a solution to the problem. But uh, t- tell, us, tell us about the, the crayfish. Well, these Australian red claw crayfish, you know, as you know, they're exotic. And uh, they were introduced uh, probably like 20 years ago or so. Uh, either from aquarium trade or some other way, they have made their way over here, and uh, seems like they have established a population here. Uh, the only problem is they're a little bit large in size, and they could have a ne- negative impact on our local crayfish and fish uh, species. What is it about the the crayfish that? Well, first off, let me ask this because Davis and I were curious: is there a difference between a crayfish and a crawdad? Oh, it's the same thing. Crayfish is just a technical term uh, we use. Uh, but crawfish, crawdad, those are all vernacular terms. You call it mud puppies, all those things. And what what is it about these invasive Australian crayfish that makes them especially dangerous in our area? So due to their large size, them uh, being able to reproduce uh, much faster and, and in greater numbers, it could co- uh, pose a threat uh, to the native fish uh, species. Uh, they are known to eat... Uh, dead and decaying vegetable matter, like plants, and also dead animals. But the thing is, they also clear-cut some vegetation. And so it could have an impact on, uh, you know, opening the vegetation, which is important for uh, local fish and crayfish species. Uh, It could also have an impact by direct predation on other native crayfish species and anything that's out there, because these are fairly large in size. We're joined by... Texas Parks and Wildlife biologist Dr. Archis Grubb. We're talking about the invasive Australian crayfish that they found in Brownsville. Davis Rankin, your question. Well, uh, two, two questions, but the first one is, Doctor, uh, how did it get here all the way from Australia? That's a long airplane flight. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, we have some accidental uh, aquarium releases that happen uh, quite often. You know, and uh, this might be one of those cases. Uh, they are typically also used in aquaculture industry, but we do not have any record or permission to bring in uh, for aquaculture, at least in Texas. Yeah, the, the only aquaculture I'm aware of were, were shrimp farms on the Arroyo, Colorado, in I think southern Willacy County, but that was years ago. Uh, so, yeah, but it uh, was never for the Australian red claw crayfish. 
no. you know that was not uh, an introduction pathway do, do you have any can you do a, a, a head count on i'm being serious now can you do a uh, can you count the number of them or estimate the number of australian crawfish and i'm guessing in the brownsville area that would be the extent of their yeah, spread yeah. So, so we're still like uh, way early in the game. We do not know about how far uh, the spread is. We got the first uh, notification uh, from a student in uh, from University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, uh, back in March this year. And then I went down south to verify that. And so <clears throat> we know for a fact that they're here. And that's where we posted uh, a news uh, release to Parson Wallop website and also our Rivers and Stream page, uh, Facebook page. Uh, mm -hmm. Just to bring uh, making the public aware of its presence and uh, asking people to give us information uh, about its whereabouts. So we received a huge, overwhelming response from the locals uh, with pictures and also their collections, you know, dates and times. That has been very helpful to us. How quickly? How quickly does the the this invasive this invasive crawfish? How quickly does it spread? How quickly does it reproduce? How big? Uh, how, how many does it create spawn at the same time? Right, right. So these guys, they could get up to two pounds in size. And so it's definitely a lot larger than our native crayfish, which are fairly smaller in size. Um, and uh, they could reproduce two to three times a year, and each time carrying about 500 to 1,000 or so babies. Um, and uh, because of its large size, yeah, females are able to protect their young ones. Um, and they are able to spread, and uh, they're typically uh, from Rosacas over there in South Texas. That's where we are received modifications from so far. I I've had the impression or the idea that you were headquartered down here, that your Parks and Wildlife office was here in the Rio Grande Valley. No, so <clears throat> our headquarters is up in Austin, but my field office is in San Marcos, Texas. And oh. I heard that the information. I came and uh, made a trip out there. Do they have, they have the invasive crayfish up there, too? No, we no. do not have here, at least uh, routine sampling uh, through our river studies program in the rivers and streams here and throughout the state. And we have not encountered any of these here so far. But now that we know they're down, yeah. we're planning uh, probably conducting our surveys. To see how can, far can you can spread. you repeat that you were you were cutting out there doctor could you repeat that please <clears throat> yeah so uh, we conduct routine surveys throughout the state uh, looking at the fish populations and also invertebrate populations uh, and we have not come across any of the Australian red clock fish at least uh, up north here or, or in central Texas so <clears throat> we're definitely going to be increasing our surveys in South Texas areas in response to this. But we are, at this point, we're hoping to get uh, more response back and feedback from the local residents about its uh, spread. I don't know if you've been to a crawfish boil, um, which, you know, just for the record, neither Zach nor I really crave crawfish, but a lot of people do. And I'm, do we grow them commercially, or do they, do they grow anywhere in Texas? Well, the, yeah, the I'm a crawfish boil. I actually love the crawfish. <laughs> but no, we currently uh, we do not license uh, possession of this Australian red clock crayfish. 
uh, either for recreational or aquaculture purposes. Uh, due to so, to the other species. So, what do, what do we do in, in controlling this population? Do we do what we do with other species, like they do in Florida, and hey, let's go hunt them and and have the, the crawdad boil? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose <laughs> you collect him. them uh, as long as you have a fishing license. Collect them. Oh, uh, make sure you're collecting it from like a safe area where there's not much water pollution. So we, we're not uh, telling people to consume them. It's at your own risk, but as long as you do it in a safe manner, you should be good. Last Go ahead, question Davis, before we for go. Dr. Grubb. Uh, but if someone were to get one and handle mm -hmm. it uh, and or boil it up and eat it, there's this is not a poisonous species. It's simply a different species and one we don't want around here for, for other reasons, but it's not going to kill you. It's not right yeah correct yeah i'm assuming it's gonna taste great i personally have not tried one yet <laughs> but <laughs> you know, people around the world have been eating it <laughs> i think we i think we've made him hungry zach i think it's it's time to go to lubies <laughs> well no it's 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 a good thing to know because sometimes something will look really tasty or something will be uh yeah. Yeah, traditionally yeah, but then right. like this one specific species you can't have oh okay well and so it's good to know you know Dr. No, I mean, Dr. obviously, it's uh, an aquaculture industry uh, in many parts of the world, so it is safe for human consumption. Well, we may consume more time with you. You just never know. We've got your cell phone, so uh, and we, we may call you in the future about something, but it's been great. You've, been, you've done a great job and uh, we'll, made it more we'll, interesting. We'll invite you to the be. boil. That's right. Oh, That's yeah, definitely. Bit. Send me the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to boil up some uh, Dr. Let's have a Arches tofu boil. Grub from Texas Parks and Wildlife. He's an aquatic biologist and our guest on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an active shooter, multiple gunshots. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Out in the Dallas Fort Worth area exists an airline, American Airlines, and they've agreed to buy 20 planes from Boom Supersonic. Our guest on 710KURV to talk about this very thing, somebody who's flown many, 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 many times, Mike oh. Hatton, who is a former commercial airline pilot. Yeah, he joins us now on your 956 drive home. So supersonic jets for uh, commercial use. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. So what's the difference between a supersonic jet and your regular run-of-the-mill average everyday jet? <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be back mm -hmm. uh, on KURV again. The basic difference, obviously, is the supersonic jet travels faster than the speed of sound. 
mm. which is what creates the sonic boom that uh, we've all heard about for years and has been talked about. And a regular passenger jet now doesn't approach that speed. It travels subsonic. How many people can you fit on a supersonic jet? The one that's being designed that American uh, just bought 20 of and uh, United Airlines bought uh, 15 of uh, in the past is designed to hold uh, 65 to 80 or 85 people and uh, carry them for a distance of 4,250 miles at 60,000 feet, which is about 20, 15 to 20,000 feet higher than uh, airliners today. Whoa. So what is the intended use for, for planes like this? What are they normally used for? Well, they'll be used uh, to fly across uh, bodies of water uh, because you can't uh, create a sonic boom. You can't exceed the speed of sound over land in uh, most all, if not all countries, especially the United States because of the uh, sonic boom. Uh, so they'll be used to connect London 3.3 uh, hours, 3 hours and 15 minutes to uh, London from New York. It takes now between 5.5 to 7.5 hours depending on winds. So it'll be tremendous savings for fuel, tremendous savings for time for business people, vacationers. It's uh, this is this is an exciting uh, this is an exciting step forward. It's a ways down the road, but it really excites me to even talk about this. So American Airlines doesn't have any supersonic jets already in their hangars, and this is not an addition to what they've already got. This is like a new a new section, like a new frontier for them. Is is that what I'm understanding? Yes, sir. This is a new concept for everyone. There was uh, the last supersonic aircraft to fly was the Concorde, and of course, uh, a tragedy uh, caused the um, you know the ultimate parking mm -hmm. of that airplane. It became uh, a little too uh, expensive to operate. So that's why everybody's so excited now. The first one is due to roll off the line in 2025, and the first uh, passengers can expect to fly in 2029 according to the current schedule. Our guest on 710KURV is Mike Hatton. He's a former commercial airline pilot. We're talking about the acquisition in the future for American Airlines to pick up 20 supersonic jets. Davis Rankin, your question? And the, the, well, I'm, and this thing does fly. I mean, it's been tested out and it's good to go. And it, it's, um, there's no bugs yet to be worked out. This is the great thing uh, about this aircraft. Uh, it's a leap in technology over the Concorde. If you imagine when the Concorde was designed, they didn't have the uh, technology to design these things without ever flying yeah. them out. This has been designed. Uh, the fuselage materials have been uh, tested. Their composite the wing structure has been tested. Uh, there's a simulator already in operation that they're uh, testing this thing, and they can validate hmm. all of their uh, assumptions. And there's a model called the XB-1. The Overture is the plane that American and United bought. The XB-1 is uh, a proof of concept. It's just a much smaller scale model, and that's already been built and due to begin flying soon. Do you have any idea what, what the ticket will cost? I would assume that these are more expensive to build and to fly, thus the ticket price will be higher. Well, you know, so, that's, a, that's a great assumption, and uh, that's the same assumption I'd make. Uh, as I researched this when I first read about it, um, I started to read that uh, ticket prices were expected to be close to what they are to today, uh, you know, adjusted for inflation, and that's another conversation. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> and but uh, they would be slightly more, but uh, not as much more as people would think. That's good wow. to hear. 
my question is what is the experience like flying on a supersonic jet versus a regular jet well uh that's interesting uh, question also i i had the same thought and i started to research that and of course on a supersonic plane when you exceed the speed of sound you break the sound barrier and that's what gives you the sonic boom the pilots and the passengers don't hear that uh, a quick google dive uh, will show anyone pictures of a military jet breaking the sound barrier and you'll see like a white cloud around the airplane which is condensation as it breaks the sound barrier and the passengers could possibly see that move back the airplane as the airplane outruns that but uh, the sonic boom is uh, you just don't hear it uh, inside the airplane why is that do you know uh, I don't know why it's not heard inside the airplane but I can tell you that the easiest way to understand the sonic boom is if you've been on a boat and you're traveling slow in the boat the bow of the boat the front of the boat pushes awake that you can see in front of the boat and you can also yeah. see awake in the back of the boat as the boat speeds up you begin to outrun the wave in the front of the boat and the wake in the front of the boat and it moves toward the rear of the boat and now you only have the wake behind the boat uh, when you get up on plane and going fast so that's the the simplest explanation that i can come up with uh, at this point to describe how that curtain moves back as you outrun the, uh, as you break through the sound barrier. There's pressure waves. On the sound barrier is pressure waves. The sonic boom is just simply pressure waves that uh, are pushed by the airplane. You've been on the interstate before, and maybe a large tractor trailer comes up behind you, and you feel it move your car as it passes. Mm -hmm. That's a bow wave, just like a boat pushes. Uh, airplanes push a bow wave like that also. Our guest on 710KURV is former commercial airline pilot Mike Hatton. We're talking about supersonic planes, supersonic jets, as American Airlines has agreed to pick up 20 of them in the near future. Davis Franken, I believe you had a question. Yeah, what's the, um, what's the application for these? I'm, I figure this is not going to be the uh, Valley to Dallas flight or the Valley to Houston flight. Uh, any other airlines already put down their money to get one of these? Nobody that I know of has put down money yet, but uh, I'm sure they're in talks uh, behind the scenes. Uh, usually when one carrier announces, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody else in, in order to stay competitive uh, has to look at the same thing. Uh, and you're correct. They won't be used over uh, the continental United States because to fly that airplane slower, you could fly it, but to fly it slower, it's not as efficient. So it would become yeah. cost prohibitive there. I expect when they're first introduced, you'll see them used uh, from the coastal regions of the United States to, uh, you know, other destinations for probably business travel a lot. Do you need a special pilot for these? Is there an extra training or license uh, certification that you need for this? They haven't announced anything yet. Um, they didn't have any special aviation license or certificate for the Concorde. But anytime a pilot changes airplanes, so for instance, to go from a 777 to the 787, a pilot has to go back to training and gets what's called a type rating added to his pilot certificate for that airplane. I suspect it'll be pretty much the same for the Concorde. I mean, I'm sorry, for the new Overture, that's, uh, that's the new airplane. And who's building this? Again, I know you said this, but what company is doing it and are there any other companies in the doing the trying to do the same thing 
right now I'm only aware of Boom Supersonic. That's their uh, name. They're in the uh, Denver, Colorado area. Uh, mm-hmm. As you look through their, um, if you look through their uh, company and their org chart, they have a who's who of people. A lot of really talented people, uh, engineers. Uh, they're doing a lot of good things. They've announced that they're going to have an intern program with uh, colleges to support uh, people wanting aviation careers and, uh, and a lot of different things like this. They're using sustainable fuel, too. They're committed to this airplane fly on uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, which is made from, it's basically biofuels. It can be made from hmm. uh, forestry waste, a lot of different things. Even, I, and I didn't know this until I started reading, they can extract carbon from the air and use this in the manufacturing process to make sustainable fuels. So they can actually remove carbon from the air. Huh. Wow. Maybe they get some of that, some of that Willie Nelson, uh, you know, marijuana diesel or whatever it is. What? <laughs> he's, he's got a well, biofuel. Willie Nelson has a biofuel, that's all. This that, all that it, it sounds to me like this is this this will spark. I mean, if it if it is if it turns out like it sounds like it's going to, this ought to spark another round of spending by the airline companies, at least the ones who fly intercontinentally, uh, to keep to keep up. No. Well, it will, and it it, it it always has in the past. I say it will, but the, if the past is any guide, yes, it will. Uh, it's it's an exciting thing. Uh, for me to think about now, I won't uh, see. I won't be able to fly this in my lifetime, but I'll likely be able to travel on it. But uh, it's just—it's really just a leap forward yeah. exponentially in aviation. When do we get to um, experience this? When when do the the, the planes come in? The planes, uh, the first one, full-scale model for testing and FAA certification will roll off the assembly line in 2025, and uh, you can expect three to four years of testing. Um, they'll put this thing through its paces and uh, make sure it's safe before it hits the market. And they estimate in 2029, it will be certified and the first passengers will begin flying on it. Uh, one more question. Uh, there, there was a time when people dressed up uh, to, to fly on an airplane because it, it was so expensive and you know, coat and tie and that sort of thing. Now it, we're happy if they just dress put something on to come on the airplane. It's, it's so much less expensive. Do you know, or has it been said, what what will be opened up, if anything, by the perfection of this technique, this technology? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, first of all, to answer the question about people dressing up and things like this, uh, as Davis was asking the last question, I was I was thinking about what the first flight would be like. You can bet this will be a huge press event. This will oh, be yeah. a champagne and black tie event if uh, if if my prediction is true. I could be wrong, but uh, I would guess I've, that I've this will to. be one of the biggest uh, announcements we've had in a long time. I have so, a tuxedo. Uh, this so this will be a huge event. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, this is a tux moment, and they're going to be serving champagne and caviar on, on board to, this flight. It ought to make... Um, it ought to make international travel or very long, like the, the flight from the West Coast to Australia. My son took that. Apparently, it's just nasty. Uh, I forget which way it's nastier, but it just wears you out. This ought, to, this ought to maybe make intercontinental travel a little more palatable, although more, it's got to be more expensive. I just don't can't see how they're going to. 
it should be a lot more comfortable. Uh, I've flown that route also, and uh, I can tell you as a crew member, we put four pilots on that because we have to have two relief pilots because that flight is, uh, you know, 15, 16 hours. I yeah. flew the uh, the inaugural flight from Sydney back to Houston in a 787, and uh, that's Ooh. an incredibly long flight also. it's uh, So this will be huge as far as uh, savings in fuel and also time. Cool. Hey, thanks for breaking it down for us, Mike. Thank you. That's Mike Hatton, former commercial airline pilot, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. This is the 956 Drive Home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We go now across the border to Adolfonso Poncho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas, for some border stories, the cartel chronicles, as it were. But the first story that I want to uh, talk about here is the headline that y'all put out. A couple of days ago, Mexico's former attorney general has been arrested following the student massacre investigation. Now, take us back to the beginning. What, what, uh, which massacre are we referring to? We're talking about the massacre of the 43 education students. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, I believe, uh, 2014, 2015. A group of 43 students, uh, they pretty much uh, stole two buses they were going to a protest. Uh, along the way, the buses uh, get stopped by police. The police turn them over to the two cartel members, and then the student are never heard from again. This attorney general is the one that said the cartel members basically killed and incinerated the students and dumped their bodies in a in a landfill. Basically, not the bodies, but the, the ashes. That there was nothing to be found. Um. That version of event was disproven soon after because uh, scientists went to that area and said, well, you know, there's not no trace of a massive fire here. And that was one of the big uh, questions that was related to that case because they arrested a lot of people, a lot of cartel members and even a mayor and, and stuff like that back at the time. But there was never an answer as to what really happened to the students. They brought in forensic scientists from, uh, you know, international forensic scientists to help try to decipher everything and ultimately it was basically people were saying that there was a, a government cover-up now one of the things that AMLO the current president of Mexico uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador when he was campaigning he basically said that he was going to get to the bottom of it and um, so that that was one of his crusades now four years into his administration his uh one of his close allies uh, his uh Undersecretary of, uh, well, they call it the Ministry of Truth and Justice. He pretty much released his report saying, this is what we found. Uh, it's, it's basically a government cover-up. It's a state crime. Uh, pretty much everything was manipulated to protect powerful people at, at the top. 
So uh, basically a day after they released that report, they uh, arrest this gentleman, uh, uh, Murilo Karam, who was, at, who was the attorney general at the time. Basically, they claimed that he tortured people uh, to get, uh, you know, fake confessions. And he basically covered up the, the real story of what actually happened. Uh, he remains in jail at this point, and they've actually arrested uh, several other uh, military people. Uh, uh, however, you know, it's still a very controversial case because uh, Mexico, well, we know Mexico's legal system is very corrupt and, and, and it's not a... It's not a very transparent system, and especially in a very politicized place like Mexican politics are right now, it's highly unlikely that we'll actually get a, uh, you know, true answers at this point with this new investigation. Joining us on 710KURV is Edilfonso Poncho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas. We're getting some of the, the border stories. We're, we're catching up on some of this. Uh, what's the latest on um, journalism in in mexico uh they they keep finding people or people keep turning up dead that are journalists in mexico what's the latest on that well i mean this is you know it, it's a it's, it's a tragedy what, what continues to happen over there i mean just two weeks ago we had a uh, when uh, violence you know went kind of went crazy in juarez they basically shot a radio uh you know a, a, a radio uh, dj or you know a radio journalist uh, while he was on air. Uh, Whoa. You know, uh, that one was uh, two weeks ago. Then just last week, uh, same, uh, there was this uh, journalist that was reported missing from the state of Sonora. Um, and basically his remains were found a couple of days later. I mean, right now, Mexico, uh, we have counted 15 murder journalists this year uh, alone in Mexico. Uh, it's becoming one of the deadliest co the countries in the world for journalism. Uh, however, Mexico's president says that impunity has ended and things are great. Uh, so that, that that's the, so the, the the issue. But however, you know, even though impunity has ended in Mexico as per the president, this year is becoming one of the deadliest for journalists in Mexico. This is Davis. What is uh, impunity? What what does that mean in in over here? Well, uh, basically, Amlo says that crimes will not go unsolved, and that basically he's saying that nobody's going to uh, get away with anything like they used to. That okay. has been his rhetoric, and he sticks by his you know by his phrasing. Uh, mm -hmm. And whenever somebody says, "Hey, what about uh, you know crimes against journalists?" He says, "No, no, no, no." Impunity has ended in my in my administration. Nobody's <laughs> going to get away with anything. However, uh, the crimes continue to happen, and you know, usually what they've been ca doing is they capture um, some low level guy, and usually the masterminds are never caught. Hey, how how many years are left in Amlo's term, uh, Pancho? Mm -hmm. uh, he is. Uh, he has about two years left. His term was six mm -hmm. years. He went in in 2018, so he should be out in 2024. However, uh, the way things are in Mexico, it is likely that the next president will likely be from his party, the way things are being played out. There haven't been any like murmurings of, of uh, candidates that are about to step up and take his place when that happens during that election? Yes, actually, his two, main, uh, two of his closest allies 
are already kind of saying, you know, they, they, they're going to be the next one. So his own <laughs> wow. party already has four possible candidates that will be next. Uh, and basically it's, you know, just bluntly well, speaking, it's going to be up to AMLO who he picks as his successor. That's almost like a monarchy. That's incredible. Um, we're speaking with Pancho well, Adolfonso Ortiz well, from Breitbart, Texas. Go ahead, well, finish your thought. Um, well, that is how it used to be in Mexico. Uh, remember, for 70-plus mm-hmm. years, the PRI, uh, with the party, the previous party, uh, the PRI, the previous party in power, they did that. They basically ruled like a monarchy, and they chose their successors. It wasn't until uh, Vicente Fox was the first one to break with that uh, success, you know, with that, with that model and became the first uh, ever in Mexico, the first ever uh, president from an opposition party. Then, you know, there was pretty got back into power. And then AMLO created his own party and took the power away from the PRI. However, a lot of the PRI operators, the main people that did all the dirty dealings and all the corruption and everything, they just switched parties from PRI to Morena. So in reality, the PRI is still in power. They just call Morena now. Pancho Alfonso Ortiz, or I got the names mixed up, sorry, from Breitbart, Texas, is joining us on your 956 drive home. We're getting a border update. And one one of the stories that I think uh, really needs a lot of attention is the uh, the chemicals story that y'all posted on the 16th where um, human traffickers have been going out of their way to avoid detection by the police dogs. What are they doing? Well, this is something that they've done in the past. They've done it with... Uh, they did it usually to hide drugs. Uh, they would, uh, when they when they move drugs, they'll wrap them up in you know uh, f- uh, um, plastic wraps, uh, foil, and everything, and then they'll use chemicals to hide the smells. They'll use uh, uh, fabuloso, uh, uh, various cleaners, uh, mm-hmm. lime stuff that would basically mask the smell, and then they just wrap yeah. it very tightly. Well, as for example, the Gulf Cartel right now, they're actually focusing a lot more on human smuggling than they are with drugs at this point. So now they're shifting some of these strategies over to people. So now they're encountering, uh, you know, tractor trailers with people and people, they've been, you know, uh, spraying people with chemicals. They've been spraying them with lime, anything to master the, the smell of a human so that the dogs at the checkpoints don't pick them up which is actually a very dangerous uh, uh, situation mm-hmm. because you not only have to now worry about people being cramped up in a tractor trailer with, you know, 100 and plus degree weather. Now you're adding chemicals that when they're inhaled and all that other stuff, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. This is, these are like the harsh chemicals that you're not supposed to put directly on human skin for any period of time, much less an extended period of time, correct? Exactly. And then you add the heat in there, you know, people start breathing faster. So now they're inhaling these chemicals or the fumes mm-hmm. from these chemicals as to mask the, the, you know, because they're cramped up in that trailer. It, it's actually a very dangerous uh, mix of things that are, that are happening now. Is it effective? Do they, is this a, a, a tactic that works for them despite say like x-ray technology that we have? I mean, if it's effective, I, I really, you know, I, I wouldn't have the stats to tell you how many get right. away or how many, you know, uh, how it works. But I mean, uh, you know, it, it's been done so long with drugs that they've done it to master the smell of drugs. Uh, sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. Uh, 
So, you know, in, in the case of humans, I mean, it's, it's uncharted territory at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it just seems like, and I don't I don't mean to say this in a way that belittles what's what's happening. It it just seems like some person who's a really heavy smoker trying to like spray Febreze and cover up the smell, you know. It, except they're taking this into a, a wild extreme. Yes, and then you know, when you you know going back to that point, what the, the, one of the things they're also doing is they're starting to use foam sealant on you know. On, on the crevices to basically keep the, the air from uh-huh. coming out, which now you're having a, you're trapping humans in an airtight container of sorts, which is even, oh, you Lord. know, riskier. Oh, wow. Lord, please, no. Oh, man. I have Poncho. a question. Uh, one question before oh. we go, Davey. Go? The, uh, the murders of those uh, college students, they just arrested the guy you guys reported. I, I read that story, and you all quote a lot of different people about what's supposed to have happened. Apparently, no one, no one known, nobody really knows, or at least nobody who makes his way into newspaper articles really can say exactly what happened. Right? Somebody no, knows, the, but the, I don't know who. The they like basically after they were taken, nobody knows what happened to to them. I mean, it is safe to assume that they that they've been killed. Even the the new report mm-hmm. says that you know they're like they're not alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, what actually happened to the bodies is uh, they haven't found. They never found a an area where they were you know fully incinerated. They mm-hmm. found the remains of. Uh, in some parts, they found the remains of only like a handful of of, of those students. Uh, you know, we're talking mm-hmm. about bone fragments. But in uh, in parts around, but not in one area where they said, "Here's where they killed everybody." Um, mm-hmm. That's the the problem. They really don't know, you know, what happened to the remains and the the true story of what actually happened. Pancho, stay okay. safe out there. God bless you, Thank brother. You. Thanks for thanks for bringing us those stories. It's uh, Punch uh, It Alfonso Pancho Ortiz from Breitbart, Texas. Go to com slash border and check out all the border stories that are happening. This is News Talk 710 KURV, your 956 Drive Home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.